0: Our scripture text this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you avow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear.
1: So how, how did you come to church today? I mean, not how you dress, but what's your attitude or what were you thinking as you were coming to church today? I mean, do you tend to really long for a Sunday morning and... Seeking an encounter with God, and what does God have for me? Or is it is it more of a push to come here, more of a a challenge? Maybe you come here because you're afraid not to come, or what God might do. I mean, is there is there an excitement that you have for God, or or is there just a desire to know the things of God? Or or, or maybe maybe you don't want to be here. You know, I I, I find that people tend to be in one of two groups as. In regards to worship. Um, and I draw my wisdom from the Wizard of Oz. Uh, but the, um, some of us can be more like the scarecrow. Uh, we have a heart for God. We're excited. We're passionate about God. The, the doctrine and the teaching and the expository preaching, eh, I'm not so excited about, but I just want to move and, and have a heart for God. Others of us may be more like the tin man. Uh, You have a a mind, and you love doctrine, and you love teaching, but your affection seems so cold. And your heart is so, it's seemingly so far from God. Uh, I know there's room between those two. But when you come here, what is the attitude of your heart? Many of us struggle. We really struggle with coming to worship. Well, the preacher is going to help us today. Uh, The preacher is going to help us. Think where we've been. The past four chapters, uh, the preacher has been warning us about all these different pursuits of wealth, wisdom, labor, accomplishments, success. These are things that we tend to hook our wagons to, that we get excited about, that that we devote ourselves to, that we even maybe even come close to worshiping these things. And we found how they leave us empty, frustrated, you know, kind of unsatisfied. They don't provide for us what we think we need, and yet we keep pursuing them. Well, here we are in chapter 5, and the preacher introduces to us, here is one worthy of your worship. Here is one worthy of your devotion. All these other things, all these other gifts that he's given to you, they cannot satisfy you, but this one, this God in heaven, can satisfy you. Now, when we talk about worship under the sun, we know that this worship... Among these people, it's always going to be imperfect. We, we are imperfect people in an imperfect world. You know, so much church transfer. Some is legitimate when we transfer churches. There may be theological differences or maybe geographical differences. A lot of church transfer tends to be, I, I want that different experience. I, I want to know more of God. Or, or maybe I want more rousing music or more tearful testimonies. I think in a lot of ways it's us chasing after the wind still. There is no perfect worship service. There's no perfect church under the sun. But but he tries to give us wisdom to get close to it, that we can move closer to it than maybe we've been. And that's what we're going to see in these seven verses. Uh, He's going to explain to us how we actually approach God. How ought we to come? to a gathered community to a Sunday morning how do we do this and then when we come how do we guard our steps you know what's it mean to listen well that's what he tells us to do it's better to listen well and also to speak rightly so those are the three parts of this sermon how do we approach God in worship and then and then how do we listen and and then how do we speak but it all begins in the approach. Look with me at verse 1. Because he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So coming to worship is not a benign experience. He actually warns us. He actually causes us to take caution. When he says guard your steps, I don't think he's referring like kind of if you're helping an older person kind of come into a room and they've got a little lip on the, on the door jamb. And, hey, be- better watch your step here. He's not talking about that kind of watch your step. He's saying, guard your steps. Kind of like if you and I were walking along a path. And to the right is this raging river. And to the left is this deep, dark abyss. Watch your steps while you walk. Take heed. Take heed to whom you're coming to. Be cautious how you approach as you go to the house of God. This house of God. What's the house of God? Well, it's the temple, most likely. But, but let me draw your mind back just a step. You know, in the Garden of Eden, there was no house of God. Right? I mean, the man and the woman, they dwelled with God in the cool of the day. There was no house of God. There was no tabernacle, no, no temple. I mean, we know why there's now a, a temple or a house of God. Uh, the first man and the first woman, they sinned against God. Uh, they wanted their own kingdom. They wanted to do their own thing. They didn't want to live under the Word of God and so God as a consequence of their sin moves them into the wilderness into exile under the sun which is where we are right now he moved them there they couldn't enjoy God like they did they couldn't worship God and enjoy his full presence like they once had they're now in the wilderness they're separated from God because of their sin and so their experience of God is naturally going to decrease So God, in his mercy, gave. He created a place to meet them in a tabernacle and in a temple. This is God's kindness to us. This is God saying, I'm not finished with you yet. I'm not done with you. You've rebelled against me. I still have mercy to give. And so he creates a a place to meet with the people where they can learn of him where they can grow in knowledge of him, where they can reach out to him in prayer and offer him words of praise and grow in knowledge. This is the temple of God. Now, is the church equivalent to the temple? I'd say no. No, the temple was different altogether. It was different. Even Jesus says that in John chapter 4. No longer you worship on this mountain or in the temple, you're going to worship the Lord in spirit and truth. So there is a palpable difference between the temple and the church But they're the same in this sense that God is calling a people together to worship him. And so at the temple, people would gather together and worship God. And in the church, it's the same. We gather together and worship God. So in that way, it's similar. And so as we approach God, we want to guard our steps. Remember, God's jealous about the threshold that is that's crossed to enter into his presence. You think about the Old Testament. You just didn't walk up to God. I mean, Moses had to take his sandals off. I mean, Isaiah, when he was before God, he said, woe is me, I am a man. Unclean lips, I'm ruined before God. You think about the temple, had the, had the curtains separating. You have the situation in Exodus where where God said, tell them, don't even touch the mountain, or they'll die. I, I mean, God is jealous about his presence. And so this idea of approaching God is, is to be done with a degree of seriousness. Now, I'm not trying to create my old Roman Catholic days and create a sacred space here that God's in the building and you need to hush when you walk in. and I, I'm not looking to do that. We can worship God now in spirit and truth. Our personal worship is not limited to a place. But I think what he's speaking about here is a gathered worship, a corporate worship, where he calls us to come together to worship him. You know, notice what he says there as you go to the house of God. Hey, you can go to a mountain and see a beautiful sunrise. That is not worship in its entirety. That may be a sweet scene, and it may be a time that you're reminded of God's greatness, and that's wonderful. But that's not what he's speaking about here. He's calling people, when you go. He doesn't say, if you go. He doesn't say, if it works out for you. He says, when you go. That you're expected to regularly go and worship God. To learn of him. We're living under the sun. We're living in the midst of hardship and difficulty. We're dying. We're getting sick. We're struggling. We, we need to come to God. We need to learn from God. So he talks about routinely coming together. Why? You know, when he says, when you go, there's that natural idea of repeated action. Oh, we see it in sports. The golfer who practices her swing day after day after day It begins to hone her swing. She's moving towards perfection or the swimmer that practices a stroke day after day, well, we come to gathered worship week after week that we might learn of him, that we might grow to become like him? We need to come together. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great preacher in London in the mid-20th century, and he talked about the nature of gathered worship. He talked about that there's a unique outpouring of God's spirit when you come and you're hearing God's word and you're responding to it, and I'm seeing you respond, you're seeing me speak, there's a unique event that takes place by the power of the Spirit in gathered community that you don't have when you're reading your Bible by yourself. <clears throat> that God does, when, he, when God's people, when he calls them together, he calls them out, he calls them together, the word of God is being broken among the people of God, the spirit of God moving, bringing us to a deep joy in God. It, it may not cause your, your hair to stand up. I don't mean that kind of joy. But there's a profound sanctifying work that goes on when we come together around his word, worshiping his name. I don't want us to underplay that. <clears throat> so I challenge you, how, how diligent are you to worship God together as a community? I mean, how committed are you? You know, sometimes in our church here, we can have a swing of 100 people from Sunday to Sunday. 100 people. Now, obviously, some of us, sometimes we get sick. Sometimes we're on vacation or some significant issue comes up. I, I get all that. But I know it's hard. I'm just trying to remind you of the importance as you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. Be mindful of it. Make the effort. You know, Carol and I pray every Saturday for you. So we go through each facet of the service and we pray specifically for you. And we pray for ourselves too. But Carol has picked up this idea that she always prays for those who are so tired on Sunday morning that it's just easier to roll back over. She prays that God would rouse them up. Or she prays that that it might rain, and it's cold out, and it's it's a mess out there, and maybe I'll just go next week. It's not that you have to go, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't. So we were exposed to Eastern Europeans living through communism when we lived overseas, and they'd walk miles to go to church. Amazing. I mean, I, I was humbled greatly by it. But we pray that you would see the importance of gathering together. God does a unique work here. So that's a first instruction. We're approaching God with guarded steps. But that raises the next question then. How do we guard our steps? Well, look with me back at verse 1. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they are doing evil. So what the preacher's saying is this, that as you approach God and, and you, get your, you get your mind aligned with the fact that I'm going to be coming to worship the creator of the universe, that I don't want to give foolish sacrifice. I don't want to be full. I want to listen to God. I don't want to give foolish sacrifice. What is foolish sacrifice? Well, the, the sacrifice of fools, I think, is when we're coming to worship, we may be offering something, You know, in that Old Testament context of of giving an offering to God. But we do it casually. As if we don't even recognize the grandeur and the glory of God. That we come with little thought about God. That that we come not really dealing with what are we actually doing here? And who actually are we coming before? It's a casual worship. Or it could be a formal worship. I'm just coming because I've always come. I come, it's tradition. We always go to church on Sunday. Uh, We can come with a detached heart, kind of a half hearted worship. That's where he says words hastily spoken from the heart. You know, you say things, but you don't really, you're not coming really meaning it. There's a formal, there's a half hearted nature of worship. It's foolish, or maybe presumptuous, that you come, you come thinking, well, God, okay, I'm giving you my hour. What are you going to have for me? You know, notice what he says when we don't come to listen. Notice what he says. He says, for they don't know that they're doing evil. In other words, it's it's like a sin without forethought. It's like a a lazy sin. It's a presumptuous sin, but it's still a sin. We're coming before God as part of a gathered community, and and we give little effort to really understanding the nature of God. I, I did this for years. I mean, I'd come for years to go to church. I, I would go because I had to, or I'd go because I was afraid that if I didn't, God might be mean to me that week. I, I, I went because a lot of times I just went. I didn't even check in. I mean, my body was there. My mind was cutting the grass or doing whatever I was going to do in the afternoon. I, I mean, I was a fool. I didn't even know what I was doing. It's what he said. They don't even know they're doing evil. So there's a warning here. The preacher's saying, listen, we're chasing stuff all week long. He goes, the true object, object of devotion is God. And when you come, don't offer the sacrifice of fools. But what's he say? Look, look what he says. He says, to listen is better. To listen is better. <clears throat> to listen to God. You know, when Moses drew the people out of Egypt, and he brought him into the desert. Remember what Moses said to the Pharaoh. He says, God wants his people to be gathered together to worship his name. And that's what Moses did. He went and retrieved these people, brought them into the desert. What's one of the first sermons he preached? He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Hear, listen, Israel. Listen, the Lord your God is one God. He's teaching them. He's asking them to listen. That's what we're doing here. We're gathering together to listen to the word. We sang the word. The word was prayed. Keith prayed. Melanie read the word. I'm preaching the word. Uh, when John gets up and gives the benediction, he's gonna. that benediction is a blessing of the word. We're here to hear God. That's what we've come to do, to, to listen. To listen to the word of God. But how do we listen? What's it mean to listen well? Does it mean that we kind of sit and close our eyes and, and we just kind of meditate on God and waiting for Him to speak? It was some mystic of the, of the Middle Ages? No, not at all. I think we're coming to listen to the Scriptures that God has given to us these Scriptures, that God has put forth in word His own revelation. It, it really does... Um, when, when you motivate yourself to come to church to listen, it really does reveal what you think about the Bible. You know, do you believe that the scriptures are actually God's word? You know, God is a speaking God. He does speak. I mean, He speaks all things into existence. The world and everything was created by His word. So everything you see is by the word of God. Uh, God speaks. He speaks. You know, it's interesting, in the letter to the Hebrews, many of you know this, that it was really, it's a sermon. It's a sermon from a preacher, and he's preaching to a people to be steadfast, to not turn back to the ways, to persevere. And and he says that one of the ways of persevering is to listen to the Word of God, to hear the Word of God. And he says something interesting in chapter 3, verse 7. He says, The Spirit says, and then you're like, well, what does the Spirit have to say to us? And then he quotes Psalm 95. So he's saying that even in the reading of Psalm 95, you're hearing God speak to you. It's in a present tense, active indicative. He's saying it. It wasn't like he used to say it or he did say it. He speaks to you. He says this to you. That's why he says, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. God's speaking to us through his word. He speaks to us. You know, Can you imagine if we could get God to come down with us? And and if we had a big table and we all sat around the table and God was there at the table and someone comes forward with a question, you may know the answer to it. You may think you know the answer. Who's going to speak first? Only the fool. When God's at the table. I mean, won't we look and, well, what's he think? Uh, Don't we want to know what he thinks first? That's what we're doing when we come to the worship of God of the gathered community. God, what do you have to say? What do you want to say to us? What do we need to hear? John Calvin thought a lot about this. John Calvin, the great reformer um, from Geneva. He he saw that the gathered community was a unique event where where the pulpit was going to bring forth the word that you needed to hear. He said these words, This is from T.H.L. Parker. He says, If the preacher faithfully hands on what he himself has learned in the school of God, then God himself presides. He is in the midst, as if he were showing himself visibly or face to face, and his people are joined to him. Our Lord Jesus is present, and the church is united with him. The pulpit is the throne from which God the throne of God, from where he wills to govern our souls. Our responsibility is to bear in mind then that the doctrine which we receive of God is as the speech of a king. Now, you don't need to tell me I'm not an inspired apostle. Carol already did that a long time ago. But what Calvin's saying is that the Spirit of God takes this unique environment that's only when his people gather an imperfect preacher, and he brings a clear word to you, that it's God speaking to you. He goes on in his commentary to Timothy, when Calvin writes on his commentary, he says this, I love it. God did not content himself to put forth the Holy Scripture that every man or a woman might study it, but he devised in his infinite goodness a second means to instruct us. He would have the doctrine that is contained therein preached and expounded to us. And for this end in prayer, he has appointed shepherds in his church which have the office in charge of teaching. We see he deals with us after our weakness and chews our morsels for us that we might digest them better. In that he feeds us as little children, we shall never be able to excuse ourselves unless we profit in a school. What he's saying is, he's given the church preachers who chew all week on the word to make it in morsels that you can digest easier. So you help support me as I chew and try to make sense to give to you in morsels that are digestible and helpful for you. That comes only in the gathered community. So, so we come to listen well. Th- so the charge to us then is to listen. A- and we want to listen with humility. We want to listen. We don't want to come uh, to approach God, you know, asking the preacher to only confirm what you already believe. We don't want to come and and think, well, I need to hear this today because this is where I am right now. God may have a different plan for you. You know, James says, receive the word humbly and plant it in your soul. We, we, We want to hear it with humility so that we might do it. Sometimes it may be difficult, may be hard to understand. You may disagree. Well, then by all means, come forward and speak. After the service, I would love that. But that that receiving it humbly is you're going to at least receive it and say, What shall I do with this? You want to be attentive to the word. You know, you, you are hit with thousands and ten thousands of words every week, and yet here you have a few thousand words given to you. To be attentive to those, to be not distracted to go home and meditate on what you've heard, to maybe go back later in the afternoon and read back through the text and remind yourself of the truth, the morsels that have been given to you, the chewed-up morsels to make them more digestible. You know, Thomas Brooks, a great Puritan, says these words. He says, it's not the bee's touching of the flower which gathers honey. It's her abiding for a time upon the flower which draws out the sweet. It's not he who reads most, but he who meditates most, who will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christians. There, there's that attentive listening, that meditation that you're doing. And then I would say that there's a responsible way to listen, that you're given a charge. You're being given information now. You're, you're given morsels to understand. And, and to whom much is given, much is required if it were to be asked to you what have you done with all these sermons with all the truth given to you how has it profited you how has your life been changed by it there ought to be some effect you know james talks about the man who hears and and walks away and doesn't do it he's like the man who looks in the mirror and forgets who he is there's a hearing and there's a doing is there a doing so we come to listen well To listen well. We approach Him in reverence, guarding our steps. We listen well. But notice the next warning He gives us is to speak well. That we come to speak well. Looking back at um, verse 2. He picks it up at the end of verse 2. He says, Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you're on the earth. So what he does is he warns us when you come to worship and you're going to be singing and you're going to be praying and you're going to be speaking to one another about God, be not rash. Do, you know, don't be too quick to just speak the things about God that you may not have given thought to. In other words, don't be too fast to answer or to speak or to sing a song when your mind's detached and far away. You know, sometimes I wonder when we're singing, are we really meditating on the words? Or when we're praying or when you're joining with Keith in prayer, are you really like walking along with him as he's giving you the words to chew on? Because he says, don't be rash about what we say to or about God. Be mindful of that. You know, we can speak very, very quickly. We can speak without thought. We've all done that. And yet he warns us to not be rash or or that your heart be hasty. In other words, we don't want to say words that aren't really believed on in our heart. Like sometimes we give that Christian answer, but do we really believe it? Sometimes we don't. And he's saying, don't don't do that. God sees the disconnect. You see it, kind of. And why does he say, He, he warns us because he says, God's in heaven. You're on earth. You and I are made of dust, we're in the dust, we're momentary. He is in heaven, he's eternal. There's a great chasm, a great divide. Be mindful of that. This huge divide between us and God. We're going to be mindful when we speak to him. But not just, that's one warning, don't be rash in your speech. He also says, you know, don't be over-talking. Just speaking words upon words upon words. Look at verse two, where he says, uh, "Let your words be few." He gives this parable, you know, or parallel for a dream comes with much business. In other words, uh, the one who's overworked dreams a lot. The one who over who overspeaks talks a lot. You know, in, in Proverbs 10:19, it says, "In the in the presence of many words, there is sin." You know, we want to be mindful about, are we over-praying? Are we over-talking over so as to be impressive of others? Or to impress others? You know, Jesus gives a warning in Matthew. He says, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask Him. pray like this. Our Father in heaven. He's a God in the heavens. And we are upon the earth. We want to be mindful of that. So, so we want to be mindful of our speech when we speak about God. This is really going to be kind of straightening us up a little bit. I don't want to take out the reverent affection we have for God. I think it's a good corrective. We want to be mindful about what we say. We don't want to oversay it. And thirdly, we don't want to be dishonest in what we say. Look with me in 4 to 6. He says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he is no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger or the minister or the priest that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? This is interesting here. This is really confusing. I don't think he's condemning making a vow. I think he's condemning making vows that you don't keep. You know, vows, making vows in the temple were customary at the time. You would often bring a sacrifice, and you would give it to God, and you would say, God, this is for your glory and for honor. Would you find favor with me? Would you bring favor into my life? I I would ask you to be favorable to me on this petition I have. It wasn't a bartering. It, It was an actual acknowledgment to the glory of God, and it was a recognition that we're dependent upon him and we need him. God, we know, that you're, we know that you're God. Would you help us? So we see it with the woman Hannah. right? Hannah was barren. She prayed to God for a child. And God gave her a child. And here's what's written in 1 Samuel 1. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but if you will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall touch his head. Said so she kept her vow, and after winning him, she dedicated him to the Lord. So it was a vow. Jesus isn't condemning making a vow. He's, making, he's condemning making a vow, not keeping it. We make vows all the time, don't we? I mean, we do privately. I mean, in our own heart, don't you make promises and resolutions? So maybe you hear a sermon, <clears throat> you're convicted, you say, God, I... God, I want to do better. I want to turn away from porn. God, I want to, I want to turn away from food as a comfort. God, I, I want to turn away from gossip and anger and bitterness. Have you ever made that vow? Have you ever said, God, I, I, I'm not going to do this. You know, you, you're awash in the guilt of your sin, and you say, God, I, I, I commit. I'm not going to do this again. We make personal vows, private vows all the time. I, I don't think they're wrong. He's just saying, keep them. Ask God to keep them. God, you've got to help me keep it. I I can't do this vow. we make public vows. I mean at marriage aren't those public vows man the woman there They are they're promising God. They're promising each other. We're going to stay together and at every wedding I do I ask you before at the beginning of the service. I ask the congregation hey Do you promise to help this couple keep their vows and you always say I do you make a public vow? Have you done that? Have you made that have you kept that promise when you see couples in travail? Have you entered said you know what I prayed I vowed that I would help you when we do daddy baby dedications which we'll do in another few weeks I ask the parents to make a vow to God that they will raise a child in the fear and admonition of the Lord and I ask you to promise to help raise this child even finances or spiritual teaching them in Sunday school or new members same thing they vow to God they're going to be with you you vow to open up your friendship circles to draw in new people Not just stick with those that you know. You vowed to do it. Have you done it? So nothing wrong with vows. He's just saying, be honest and keep them. That's what he's saying. Now, uh, this brings us to a point of kind of repentance, I think. I mean, when we read this, I've made vows. I've promised God I don't want to get angry like this again. And I haven't kept that. And so it brings us to a point of asking ourselves, it, 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 it's worthy for you this afternoon to give some consideration to, to how well you've listened. But not just how well you've listened, how rash has your speech been? How, how often have you made vows and you haven't kept it? This is the glory of the Christian gospel. We can be honest. So many Christians have trouble repenting because we think that if I admit to you I've sinned, that you won't think I really understand the gospel. And more and more Christians, they just have trouble being honest and saying, I really struggle here. I make vows all the time I don't keep. But the gospel gives us the ability to be intellectually honest with ourselves and say, yeah, hey, I'm nailed. Guilty as charged. That's who I am. God, will you have mercy on me? That's what I want to lead us to. That, that That sense of seeking God and just repenting of that. So so how do we speak wisely then? If this is how we shouldn't speak, how should we speak? Well, look with me at verse 7. He says, for when dreams increase and, and words grow many, there is vanity. So that's kind of a summary of what he's been saying. He says, but God is the one you must fear. So God's the one you must fear. We do tend to direct our speech because I think we fear other people. We fear their opinion of us, and so we speak a lot or we speak intelligently when maybe we don't really believe what we're saying, or maybe we even speak rashly because we just got to say something to him. He's saying, don't worry, don't fear other people. God's the one you ought to fear. Now, when I say fear God, of course you know what I mean. I've been hitting this a few times. It's not a fright, it's not a terror, it's not you see a ghost, it's not someone surprises you and shocks you. To fear God is to revere God that we want to speak in a way that we're actually speaking to the divine, the creator, the one who's giving us breath and life right now. How do we fear God? I mean, what's the practical import here? Well, let me give you a couple ideas. We approach God. So let me go back to the beginning. How do we approach God in worship? We approach him in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, when God met with the people in the wilderness and in the tabernacle, it it was always through a mediator. He always had one who mediated, Moses or a priest. Nobody ever came to God boldly and directly. There was always a mediator. And, And now we come to God. How do we worship God? How do we fear God rightly? We come to him in Christ. We come to him through the name and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus was in heaven. He came down to earth. So God's in heaven. We're on earth. How do we get there? Through Christ. Christ through the incarnation him taking on flesh him becoming like us him living among us him Living a perfect life him paying for our sins what separated us from God in the garden was sin What Jesus took upon himself was our sin so we can now be drawn back to God we can approach God But we approach God in the front of our mind We're coming to God knowing that I'm coming to you God. You're fearsome. You're holy No one can see your face and live. I'm coming to you in Jesus. Jesus creates the way. God hasn't changed. God hasn't become an old fool up there. He's casual now letting things go because he's tired of burning villages down. He's the same. Our relationship has changed. We're now children of God. We're no longer enemies of God. We're no longer separated. Christ has changed the relationship, so we now come as a child as a son or daughter. So that's why we can boldly come to a father with reverent affection. Reverent, his holiness and glory has not changed, but we have been changed. We've been born again through the gospel. So we come to him in the name of Christ. We come to him through the gospel. The gospel is why we can now Come before him. We can laugh and we can hug and we can speak about the things of God and we can do it gathered before the Holy One of Israel. We can do all of it because we're his children. Now, if you haven't come to faith in the gospel, then I would ask you to truly guard your steps. What right does the sinner have to come to the Creator whom he has sinned against? Other than through the gospel. This is how we're born again. We must repent of our sins. We must place the trust of our souls in Christ. And through faith we are made new. And made children of God. So that we can rush to him. In our time of need for grace and mercy. So that's the first thing. We approach in the name of Jesus. That's how we fear God. I'll know that you fear God. By you coming to worship. Saying the reason I'm here. And the reason I'm going to enjoy this is because of Christ and him alone. Secondly, we listen to God in worship and we listen to God through Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, Hebrews 12 or Hebrews 1 or yeah, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 remind us. Long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our, four, our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, he has spoken to us in a son. Whom he appointed heir of all things through who also sometimes it's really difficult to read. I just want to say reading is not a simple thing to do. I feel like I'm like on a Baja bouncing along. Whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. We come and listen to the word and we listen through the lens of Christ. Remember, Jesus said in, in John chapter one, one eighteen, it says that Jesus has come to explain the father and that Greek word is exegete the father. He's come to bring knowledge of God to us that we understand God now through Christ. Christ has Christ is the perfect representation and the revelation of God. So when we hear the scriptures, whether we're in Ecclesiastes, as we are now, we're still hearing about Christ because Ecclesiastes is pointing to the gospel and how we carry these things out. That we hear the words of God, whether they be old, new, as the words of Christ. Jesus said this very same thing. In Matthew chapter 5, when in the, B, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, he said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you. So Jesus is giving the full interpretation of the Old Testament warning. Or Jesus says, "He says that uh, whoever hears these words of mine and does them is like a house built upon the rock. So Jesus, or Peter, when all the disciples were leaving Jesus, and Jesus said to Peter, do you want to leave too? He goes, to whom else can we go that has the words of life? So, so now we, we understand the scriptures as they've been explained to us in Christ. In Luke 24, he says, "In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus, can you imagine that day? Sitting down and going through the Old Testament scriptures and saying, yeah, all these concern me. They're all pointing to me. That's why we always, even as we go through Ecclesiastes, you've heard the gospel every week as how he has fulfilled and brought to fruition all these things. So we listen to the scriptures and we're listening to how Christ is interpreting them for us. And we understand God through Christ. That's how we understand him. The Son is the perfect representation of Christ. And then third... Uh, To fear God is to revere him, but also to revere the Son. We revere both the Father and the Son. That a right worship, a right fear of God, is to look at Christ as God. He says, Jesus himself in John 5, The Father judges no one. He has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So this this means that the Jewish person, the one who practices Islam, they may think they're worshiping God. If they don't honor the Son as they honor the Father, they're not honoring the Father. We worship the Son because of who He is. He's the exact representation of God. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word... And believes him, God, who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So when we come into worship, we're approaching God through the gospel. We come to God because of the gospel, through the name of Jesus. And and we listen to the scriptures. We're listening for how has Christ fulfilled this? How has Christ fulfilled this promise? All the promises of God are yes in Christ in 2 Corinthians 2. And and then we, we fear God. By speaking, by worshiping, by praising the Son and the Father. We give all glory to Christ. We will glory in our Redeemer. We will glory in Him. We'll glory in the Father. We'll glory in the Son. The Spirit of God moves among us. The Spirit of God moves among the people of God to bring glory to the Father and the Son of God. That's what worship is. This is why we center on Christ so much. We want to worship Him. Because honoring the Son is to honor the Father. That is what makes Right worship. So, so we see here uh, in these first seven verses th- that we're called to approach God guardedly, aware of who he is, and that we want to come and listen to God. We come and that's, you know, the, the ears are the Christian organ. We listen to what God has to say, and that's what adjusts our life. He governs us from this pulpit, his word. And then we speak to him. We give praise to him. That's what we're going to do in just a moment. We're going to sing. We're going to give him praise. In fact, we're going to take just a moment and silently pray. You can speak to God right now. You've been now informed how to speak to God. So, so maybe it's a confession of your sin. Maybe it's a thankfulness for this Redeemer. But let's take a few moments now and just confess or give thanks, and then we'll sing to God. We'll speak to him through song. I'll pray for us in just a minute.